0: Well, if you've got a Bible, you'll want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as some of you will know, we're in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And it's an extended time of teaching that we get from Jesus, who's addressing his disciples and those who are curious about his teaching. We talked about how the Sermon on the Mount is meant to describe how life is supposed to work in God's kingdom. What we read in the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the way you and I were created to live. It's a picture of what we would call the good life. As you follow Jesus and his teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, you can experience life and freedom in this world. As you follow Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, you can bring wholeness and flourishing to your neighbors and to your friends. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins his sermon with the Beatitudes, We looked at those a few weeks ago, and these are a portrait of a follower of Jesus. It's the foundation of the entire Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes is. In fact, as we read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we are meant to be driven back time and time again to the Beatitudes to be reminded of who we are and how we can receive God's grace and his favor in our lives. We've got to recognize that we're poor in spirit. We've got to be those who mourn. We've got to be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We've got to recognize our need. And after giving us the Beatitudes, Jesus moves on in chapter 5 to deconstruct the teachings and the lifestyle of the Pharisees and the scribes. And he does this by highlighting six different commands through chapter 5, highlighting the way that the religious leaders understood the law, and then giving his followers the true meaning of the law. Last week, we spent some time looking at these first two commands that Jesus addresses. Specifically, we looked at how Jesus addresses murder and adultery. The Pharisees viewed these commands as strictly external. They, They believe that if they kept from the act of murder, if they kept from the act of adultery, that they had fulfilled the law. But Jesus moves beyond just the external aspect of keeping the law, and he drives it home internally. Last week, we heard him say that if you carry anger against a brother or a sister, then you've broken the commandment. If you look at another person with lustful intent, you've broken that commandment. Jesus takes the commands and he expands them. He fills them out. He's concerned with our hearts, with our motivations. Last week, we looked at the commands that dealt with what was happening in the heart of Christ's followers. And this week, we look at Jesus addressing two commands that are a bit more external in nature. These commands have to do with how we relate to other people. Last week, Jesus addressed aspects of the law that are hidden from others. And this week, Jesus is addressing aspects of the law that everyone can see. You follow along as I read Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. So let me pray for us before we look at it together this morning. Lord, we're thankful for your word and the way that it shapes and forms who we are. Thank you for the way that it points us to Jesus and all of his beauty. And we pray this morning that we would see that beauty, that we would receive his grace and his mercy, and that it would move us to live lives that seek to honor and glorify you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, when Rachel and I lived in St. Louis about eight years ago, I was going to school full-time and working a few part-time jobs on the side, and one of those part-time jobs that I had at the time was tutoring. I tutored a young boy uh, through his fifth, sixth, and seventh grade years of school, and I tutored him in lots of different subjects and generally just tried to keep him organized and on track through school. And I was a history and political science major in college. I'm a humanities person, okay? And you guys who majored in humanities know that it's not an educational track that always gets lots of respect from the world. In fact, in college, when people find out you're studying English or sociology or history, you normally get the same question. It's which coffee shop are you going to work in after you graduate? I got that question a lot. And I loved helping the boy I tutored understand the humanities. I loved English and history and geography. But when it came to the hard sciences... Let's just say, I'm not sure that he got his money's worth, okay? In fact, as he began to get into geometry in seventh grade, I find myself showing up at his house, opening the book and reviewing the chapter a few minutes before I'm about to teach him the material. And lucky for me, that was the last year that we lived in St. Louis because I would have been forced into retirement as he entered into his eighth grade year that following year. But I loved tutoring math when he was in fifth grade. Fifth grade, multiplication and division. I mean, that's where I'm comfortable. That's my wheelhouse. And I remember talking about integers and fractions that year during fifth grade. And I remember talking um, uh, about these things. And for those of you who are math people, the concept of integers and fractions is probably old news. But it was brand new to this fifth grade boy. And an integer is a number that can be written without a decimal Or a fractional component. Uh, An integer is a whole number. It's actually where we get our word integrity from. The state of being whole and undivided. The opposite of an integer is a fraction. Or a fractured number. A broken or a fragmented part of the whole. It's pretty easy. We would look at numbers and he'd say fraction or integer. Integer or fraction. It's either whole or it's fragmented. In the image of wholeness... And fragmentation is a really good image to have in mind when you're reading the Sermon on the Mount. We live in a fragmented, broken world. In our hearts, because of sin, are often fragmented and broken themselves. And this internal fragmentation that we all experience often manifests itself externally in the way we relate with other people. Our brokenness affects the way that we treat our friends and our neighbors. It affects the way that we treat those closest to us, those who even live under our own roof, our families and our spouses. And Jesus is confronting our fragmentation head-on in the Sermon on the Mount because he wants us to live whole lives, to live with integrity towards God and towards others. In fact, living and loving with wholeheartedness and integrity is really the summary of the entire law. Remember how Jesus described the greatest commandment. He said, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wants us to be whole in our love towards God and towards others. Integrity and wholeness of heart leads to integrity and wholeness in our external dealings with other people. And this passage is touching on two of the most important external realities that we all experience. Relationships, specifically our marriage relationships in speech, the words that we use to communicate with other people. And Jesus is highlighting what integrity in marriage and in our speech look like in this passage. And this morning, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. First, we'll look at integrity in our marriage relationships. Then we'll move on and look at integrity in our speech. And then we'll spend a few minutes looking at integrity incarnated or integrity in a person. So first, we see Jesus addresses what it looks like to walk with integrity in our relationships, and specifically in the most important relationship that people normally experience, which is marriage. We've all been in relationships with other people that could be characterized as shaky relationships that are fragile, relationships where you've got to watch what you say or do because if you say or do something wrong, it it could end the relationship. Relationships where you're walking on eggshells because a wrong move could ruin everything. And those kind of relationships are not fun to be a part of. And in many ways, this is what was happening in marriage relationships at the time that Jesus delivered this sermon. You see, the Middle Eastern culture of the first century devalued marriage and women unlike many other cultures have in the past. In the practice of the Pharisees and the scribes of the day were no different than the culture they found themselves in, in many ways. The religious leaders of the day were very lax when it came to divorce. Some rabbis would even teach that it was okay to divorce a woman for pretty much any reason. Things like bad housekeeping, or you found someone new so you could go and get a divorce and marry the person that you found, or you're no longer attracted to your wife, you could issue a certificate of divorce and move on. In fact, a popular historian in the first century, Josephus, said a man could divorce his wife for any cause whatsoever. It's the atmosphere in which Jesus is speaking, and in many ways, it mirrors our current culture where no-fault-at-will divorce is really the law of the land. It's the norm. And the Pharisees were basing their practice of divorce on Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, where God allowed a man to divorce his wife as long as he issued her a legal certificate of divorce. Moses required that men go through lawful avenues to divorce women, drawing up a certificate so that a woman could go on her way and have a life. But this wasn't what God had originally intended for our marriage relationships. It was a concession made by God due to sin. In many ways, it was meant to limit the chaos that sin was causing in the marital relationship. Remember, in that culture, it would also be a man's decision to divorce his wife. Never the other way around. Women had very little social or legal standing It would have always been a man's decision to divorce. It would have been him who drives the woman to divorce. So this concession was meant to give women some semblance of legal protection and dignity as well. The Pharisees and the scribes had come to believe that divorce was okay because it was legal according to Deuteronomy 24 and it made them feel better. It made them feel better knowing that they could follow the command of Moses while also getting exactly what they wanted, while also still getting divorced. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus comes and he says, no more, no more. Jesus takes us back to the original intention for marriage as it's found in Genesis chapter 2. God's original intent for marriage is lifelong commitment and fidelity to another person. No longer should divorce be allowed on demand. Instead, Jesus comes and he restricts divorce to one exception, and that's unfaithfulness. The word in the Greek is pornea, which literally means sexual immorality. Jesus is making it nearly impossible in this passage to end the marriage relationship. That's how much he cares about relational fidelity and commitment, how much he cares about relational wholeness. I want you to notice how the religious leaders of the day were focused on the grounds for divorce. They wanted to know the rules. They wanted to know the line that couldn't be crossed. How far can I go without breaking the law? In contrast, though, Jesus comes and he's focused on the original intention for marriage. He wants people to see its beauty and its goodness. In a sense, the religious leaders were focused on what they shouldn't do, And Jesus was focused on what could be. What could be? The religious leaders were focused on the bare minimum. What's the least I can do and still be okay according to the law? And Jesus is focused on the vast possibilities that could be. How can I display beauty and extravagance with the way I relate to other people? What's my vision for relationships? Look, the concession made in the Old Testament for divorce was the ground level. It was the absolute minimum. The floor that kept people from devolving into spiritual, into societal chaos. And Jesus comes and he takes us off the floor and he points us up to the ceiling, to God's original intention. He points us to the beauty and the fullness of what he originally wanted, lifelong committed marriage. As we understand what Jesus is doing here, it will change the way you view his commands throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We, just like the religious leaders of Jesus' time, are often concerned with the minimum. We ask, what's the minimum I've got to do in order to please God? What's the line I can't cross? And instead, we should be asking a completely different question altogether. We should be asking, what could my life look like? What's a vision for beauty in my relationship with God and with other people? We need to be crafting a vision for what things could be like in our lives as we relate to others. We should begin crafting a beautiful vision for our marriages and our relationships. So how do we apply this teaching of relational wholeness this morning, especially as we think about marriage? Well, for those of us who are married, you need to hear somebody tell you from time to time that Jesus loves your marriage, even when you don't. Jesus intends for you to proclaim the gospel through your marriage in in the way you love your spouse, in the way you forgive your spouse. In fact, it's the most clear picture the world has of how God relates to his church, how he relates to you and I. And if your marriage is beginning to feel hopeless, If you're growing cynical in that relationship, you need to hear that God is not cynical about your marriage and he never has been. He is hopeful for your marriage. If the gospel is true, oftentimes we think the gospel is going to make me a better person. It'll make me nicer on the road. It'll make me open the door a little more often. But if the gospel is true, that means that your marriage is never too far gone. It addresses the biggest aspects of who we are. There's always resurrection hope offered through Jesus. Even in those relationships where we've been hurt most. But you can't do it on your own. We need each other. And there's resources here, whether it be people that have been married for decades, or whether there's good counselors in town. Let us walk alongside one another as we fight for each other's marriages. Because Jesus loves your marriage. For those of you who aren't married yet, you need to get to know the biblical view of marriage. Don't believe the lies of the cultural view. Begin to shape and form your view of marriage even now by what God says. You're in a great place to begin considering what Jesus wants from your future marriage. Absolute commitment and fidelity to your spouse. Begin imagining what it could be like to relate with another person, to be known by another person, to know another person in a completely secure context beautiful. You can start thinking about that even now. What about those among us who've been divorced? Well, you need to know that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Oftentimes, the church treats divorce that way. But we've got to remember that this is one command in the middle of many. It doesn't make it less serious, but it puts it in perspective for us. If you've been divorced, you are not a second-class citizen. You're not alone. The grace and forgiveness of Jesus covers your mistakes just like it covers all of our mistakes. Okay, so we've seen that Jesus is concerned with integrity in our marriage relationship. Now, let's move on and take a look on how Jesus addresses another important external aspect of wholeheartedness when he touches on fidelity and speech. I remember when I was a boy playing with my friends in my neighborhood and Every once in a while, I'd tell a small lie, a small fib, and the content of the fib doesn't really matter. Maybe I was telling them that my dad was an astronaut or that I played tackle football, which my mom would let me do at the time, or that if you bought ice cream this week from the ice cream truck, I'll buy you ice cream next week. Anytime I made an outlandish comment or promised something to my friends, they'd always say the same thing. Do you swear to God? Do you swear to God? And I would always respond the same way. I can't swear to God. I'll swear by something else, but I can't swear to God. And and I knew that I was fibbing the whole time that my word wasn't true. And in my mind, refusing to swear to God actually left me a way out if I was caught. I could always say, well, I didn't swear to God, so it doesn't count. And it's funny, but it's a pretty good picture of what was happening during Jesus's time. The religious leaders of the day would say something and they would back it up with an oath or a vow. An oath would provide extra weight to their words and the religious leaders got really creative with their oath taking. They would take oaths on lots of different things. They would swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by their own head. And they thought that oaths might or might not be binding depending on what you swore by. So vows that invoked God's name were always binding, but vows that didn't invoke God's name weren't necessarily binding. You could make a vow on the temple and that wasn't binding, but if you made a vow on the gold in the temple, then that was binding. Lots of complicated rules when it came to vows and oaths. The way that the religious leaders could have a way out in case they decided not to keep their word. It was a good old-fashioned loophole. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus comes and he points us back to a vision of faithfulness when it comes to our speech and our promises. Taking our eyes away from the bottom level of what the law means and up to the beauty of what could be. In verses 34, 35, and 36, Jesus is saying that there's no distinctions... And vows and oaths. Because everything in this world is owned by God. It's all his. And so distinctions and gradations of an oath or a vow don't exist. When it comes to our speech, there's no loopholes. You can't get out of what you say. Jesus makes it very simple. He teaches his people to say yes or no. That should be enough. Because if you think about it, vows are meant to be a bridle on lying. And since lies are presupposed in the world, vows are taken. But Jesus is saying, not among my people. Not among God's people. Basically, he's saying you should be known as a faithful, truthful person. And if that's the case, then a promise or an oath isn't even needed. A simple yes or a no should suffice just fine. Jesus is encouraging us to pursue wholeness in our speech. No duplicity. There should be no embellishment, no manipulation, no attempt to make ourselves look better by the words that we use. You and I should be known as people who say what we mean and mean what we say. People who practice honest, simple, and clear speech. And that's so freeing. This is an, it's important if we want to experience community with one another, and it's important for our witness to the world. We may not take oaths in the same way as the first century listeners, but the principle that Jesus is teaching is applicable to our everyday lives. Because we are constantly prone to use our speech in unfaithful and untruthful ways. Think about it for a minute. We, we aren't being unfaithful in our, or we are being unfaithful in our speech when we use flattery, flattery making ourselves feel better by giving compliments that we don't really mean. We aren't being faithful with our speech when we use excessive, harmful sarcasm, hiding behind sarcastic remarks so that we don't have to engage with intimacy and sobriety in our relationships. We're not being faithful in our speech when we exaggerate, making our accomplishments or relationships sound better than they actually are, embellishing the truth. We're not being faithful with our speech when we tell a friend that we'll be somewhere and then something better comes up, so we cancel. We're not being faithful with our words when we promise to do something for another and then change our minds when it becomes inconvenient. We're not being faithful with our speech when we over-spiritualize our words. When we say things like, I'll pray for you, and don't actually pray for that person just to make ourselves sound more spiritual than we really are. You don't have to use spiritual words. You can be spiritual and use normal words. Just say what's on your heart. There are, these are ordinary ways that we use our speech on a daily basis in unfaithful ways. And Jesus is calling us to be men and women of integrity when it comes to the words that we use. So, can people trust you? Do you do what you say even when it's inconvenient for you? Is your word reliable, not even needing anything more than a simple yes or no? Okay, so we've seen Jesus give us a picture of what integrity looks like in the marriage relationship and in our speech. Now let's turn and ask the question, how are you and I supposed to be the kind of people who love others? How are we supposed to be the kind of people who protect others by the way we relate with them and by the way we speak with them? Well, we can find the motivation to remain faithful in relationships, even when it's hard and inconvenient and seems hopeless. When it would be easier to just throw in the towel and quit, where can we find the power to be people of our word, to say what we mean and do what we say? Well, the only way that you'll truly become faithful in your relationships and in your speech is if you come to realize and believe more deeply that it's exactly what Jesus has done for you. He has been faithful to you and to me in the way he relates to us and in the way he keeps his word. Think about how Christ is faithful in the way he relates to you. Though you've forsaken him, though you've been unfaithful to him, he never gives up on you. I love how the relationship with God is portrayed by Hosea. The Lord commands a prophet in the Old Testament named Hosea to do something unthinkable in order to actually live out a picture of how God relates to His people. We read what God asks Hosea to do in the first book of his, uh, in the first chapter of his book when it says this: "The Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord." And so Hosea goes and he marries a woman who's unfaithful to him. And she's unfaithful time and time and time again. And after experiencing the unfaithfulness of his wife over and over, we read in chapter 3, the Lord said to Hosea, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I'll behave the same way towards you. It's a picture of God's faithful love to his people who are oftentimes characterized by faithlessness. We deserve to be divorced by God. We deserve to be cut off by him. We deserve to be treated as though we were dead. But God doesn't do that to us. He pursues us. He comes and he buys back what should have already been his in the first place. He buys us back at great cost to himself. Jesus comes for you and me even though we've often been unfaithful to him. But we also see Christ as faithful in the way he keeps his word. Though we've used our words in faithless and untruthful ways, though we're fickle when it comes to our promises, God is always rock solid when it comes to his promises. We bail when things get inconvenient or when something better comes up. But God never bails on his word when things get inconvenient, when something better comes up, when it could be easier to go back on his word. We never see that happening with God. In fact, God promises to rescue his people. In many ways, the entire Old Testament is God promising his people how he plans to come and rescue them from their sin and their sorrow. And in the Gospels, we see God staying true to his word. Doing what he said he would do, even at great cost and inconvenience to himself. Giving his son to reclaim us, his son to rescue us. Jesus comes and he restores our fragmented lives by living a whole life on our behalf. Jesus is the one who lived a fully whole life with regard to relationships and with his speech. And God's love for us is faithful even when we're faithless. And he has proven it by sending his son Jesus to rescue us, doing what he said he would do even at great cost to himself. And as we come to believe that more deeply, you and I will become the type of people characterized by wholeness in our relationships with our spouses and in our speech. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you have come and that you have treated us with faithfulness and with true words. We pray this morning that as we experience that love and that grace in our lives, that you would change us, that you would continue to shape and to form us into the people that you want us to be, those who reflect Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray this in his name. Amen.